Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for the gospel and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus can bring. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and that it will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons on our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply email your response to pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. Um, Let's turn to the book of Galatians, and we'll finish the the thoughts, the the sermon I had from last week. I'm going to go ahead and read all of verses 11 through 21, but we'll kind of start in the middle of that today. Um, But let's just read it all so we remember where where we're at. So Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And it says, it says this, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have, have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, it is, and, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, 
For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's pray over our passage this morning. God, we are, we are thankful for your grace. How you pour out your undue favor upon us. And we are thankful that when we trust in that for salvation, we are saved. It is not by our works, not by anything we do, not how good we are or where we were born or who we were born to. But God, it is all your work. Teach us that today. Let us be encouraged by that and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you might have heard the name Barna Research Group. Barna is a, uh, a, a group that does Christian research to teach about faith um, and trends in church life in America and sometimes around the world, but mostly in America. And on August 4th in 2020, Arizona's Christian University, they have a center called Cultural Research Center. They partnered with Barna and did some research that they called, um, it was an it was a American worldview inventory. That is to say, what do Americans hold to, specifically those who call themselves Christian? Now, when you're doing research and you say uh, on, on front of this, are you a believer, are you a Christian, a lot of people check the box, and, and that may or may not be the truth. You know, we, we don't know because we're not sure what they're trusting in for their salvation. But there was a lot of information that came from that study, and maybe the most important and maybe the most disappointing was the data on this. There, was, there were people who described themselves as Christian, and so whether they were or not, we, you know, again, we don't know, but let's just say they were. 52% of them said that they believe that a person can gain eternal life by being or doing good. So they said they were Christian, but they believed in what they could do or who they were to get eternal life, which means 52% of them were not, if that's what they were trusting in for salvation. And the researchers provided some summary statements about the study, and they said this, that most people believe that the purpose of life is feeling good about yourself. Most people contend, so over 50%, you know, most people contend that all faiths are of equal value, and most people believe that entry into God's eternal presence is determined by one's personal means of choice, and there are no absolutes to guide us morally. It all is depending upon how you live, these people say, and there's really no absolute guidelines to tell us how to live right and wrong to earn that salvation. It's really a convoluted mess. And so it means, all this means really kind of two things. One, 52% of the people who call themselves Christian do not know, apparently, what the Bible has to say about being a Christian. Uh, and they are in name only. They are a Christian in name only. 
and they need Jesus. And the second is that a majority of those who call themselves Christian do not believe or do not understand justification by faith. A foundational truth to what it means to be a follower of Christ. They do not understand Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And the early church was struggling with the same problem. The Galatian regions in the ancient Near East, which would be modern-day Turkey, right above the Mediterranean Sea, the newly formed church there was trying to understand what it means to be saved by grace through faith. And I preached this section last week. If you have your little blue insert, half of it's filled in because that's the half that I did last week. And I won't necessarily, I'm not going to preach all that again because that took my whole time last time. But I will do some review. And I said we cannot mix error and truth. We cannot say it's a little bit of us and a little bit of God. That's taking error and truth, mixing it together and making it ineffective. And then I said we must teach justification by faith alone. And really, I'm going to just do a bit of review because verse 16 is just too important not to. We talked about what does those words mean. Those are church words. Justification by faith. What does all that mean? We said justification means declared innocent. And we said that there was something different legally in our legal system between not guilty and being declared innocent. Most of the time, a judge will not talk about innocence. Um, the, the, the ruling, what I mean, that the judge hands out is usually guilty or not guilty. There's rare, rarely a time he'll say this person's innocent in our legal system. And if you remember, I talked about you being a very bad bank robber, if you were here last week. And, and you went in, and you forgot your mask, so you walk in, and there's cameras getting your face, and, and your neighbor, who you just had dinner with last night, is standing you know, behind you, and you turn around and look, and he identifies you, and, and you drop your wallet that has your ID in it, and you walk out the door, and the police are there, and they capture you. There's absolutely no way that you can say, I didn't do this. There is a preponderance of evidence, so to speak. There's overwhelming evidence that you robbed this bank. And being justified means you stand before the judge with all this evidence that you robbed the bank, and he says you are innocent. That is justification. That God, spiritually speaking, God has all the evidence needed that we are rebellious and we, have, we know his law and we, we choose to disobey his law and we live according to our flesh and our lust of the, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. We, we live in that fashion and God looks at us, and when we have trusted in what Jesus did on the cross, he can look at us and say, you are innocent because your guilt has been shifted to the Son of God. That is justification. 
And that is, that is a good thing. That is what we say amen to and praise God. And that's why we worship, because it is not based on us. Because we couldn't do enough. And so justification is a declaration that God has declared us innocent. And he says here in 16 that we are not justified by the works of the law, but by faith. We are justified by, by faith. And so when he, says when we're, when he says we're not justified by the works of the law. Works of the law is anything we think we must do to gain a good standing with God. If I did this, God would love me more. If I did this, God would forgive me. I did a sin. I've, I've done something wrong, and I know that because, because the, God has placed in our conscience this, this idea that we know that we are breaking God's law. I know I'm a sinner. And so I will do this thing, and maybe that'll cancel out my sin. I might say enough prayers, or I will go to church a certain amount of time, or I'll give, you know, I, I've lied to somebody, so I'll give $100 to this poor man, and, and maybe those cancel each other out, and maybe when I get to eternity and stand before God, all my good will outweigh my bad. That is trusting in the works of the law. And he says in verse 16, the works, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No flesh will be declared innocent by what we do. That is a, a powerful statement. And it's something that we must make sure we hold on to. But he says faith is what justifies. It, God's grace justifies it, but it's through faith in that. He says in verse 16 that a man's not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And we said faith is not just believing in your head all that we have said. You can agree with what I said. Satan agrees with what I said. And Satan will not be justified. Satan understands God's economy. Satan truly understands salvation and he is, you know, he, he will not be uh, saved by any means. So it's not intellectual assent. It's not just agreeing, but it is transferring trust. Every one of you came in today and sat down on a pew. And I watched, and not, none of you came up and felt the pew, made, you know, is this going to hold me? And, and then... Uh, and then slowly sat down and, and, and hoping that you would not fall through. And none of you, best I can tell, are half sitting on, and using your legs to, to prop yourself up, thinking that that pew is going to give out. All your weight has been placed on the pew. And if that pew gave out, you would all fall on the ground, right? That is, you have placed your faith in the pew, you have transferred your trust from your legs to something else. That is faith. 
And so when it says that we have justified, we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, it's saying we are not trusting in who we are or what we have done, but we are fully trusting only in what Jesus did on the cross. That is justification by faith. And so the point we, we, we said last week and I'll get to new stuff here in just a second. That if we have a friend that we love dearly, and the friend does lots of good work, they are the best person you have ever met. There is never a harsh word. And they, are, they, are, they attend church somewhere on a regular basis. They might even read their Bible. And they are always helping the poor. They are giving of their time and giving of themselves. And they are, again, just a beautiful person. And that person, though, rejects the idea that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for their sins. Say, they might say, I'm a good person. I've not killed anybody. I don't steal and they are a good person. In, in relation to all the people of the world, they are a good person. But the scripture here says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And it, it says here that that person will not stand before God and be declared innocent by all the good that they do. And the point isn't really about that neighbor. The point is about you. What are you trusting in? When you stand in eternity before God, to want to enter into eternity, are you trusting in the good that you have done and who you are or are you fully trusting in who Christ is and what he has done? That is justification by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. The fact that God does not declare us innocent by works is not just good news, but like Mercy Me says, it's the best news ever, right? It is, it, the work is done. There, there isn't the burden or the shame that I do not live up because I don't. I'm trusting in the one who does, who was perfect and took all my sin and he took the punishment for it. And so the, it's freedom. It's freedom, and the Scripture calls it rest. It is rest to know that Jesus' work on the cross is what paid the penalty for my sins, that I am forgiven, and I'm adopted, and I'm saved, and I have eternity right now and forevermore. That's great news. That is the best news you have ever heard. 
But if that is the case, and here's where we'll move to new information, then why do people reject justification by faith? If it is so good and so restful and so joyful and just good to know that we can have rest from our works, why do people reject it? And here's what Paul has to say in verse 17. Look at the first part of 17. He says, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ a minister of sin? May it never be. We're just going to stop there. I mean, I guess that's all of 17. See, Paul anticipated the argument from his rivals, and the argument would go something like this. If, if the doctrine of justification, he, he says, the, what, what the people would be saying who was arguing against Paul is that the, the doctrine of justification is dangerous. It's dangerous because when you eliminate the law in someone's life, you eliminate the man's moral sense of responsibility. This is not the truth, but it's the argument. If someone's declared righteous because they believe in Christ, why would they bother with any standard of morality? And I've had this asked of me again and again with someone that I've been sharing the gospel with at different times in life. They say, I tell them, when you trust in Christ and give up your works and trust in what he did, all your sins are forgiven. And they say, so that means I can go kill somebody and God would forgive me. Because you're just saying there's no law. That it doesn't matter how I live, it's only what Christ did on the cross. And so I can live a sinful life and still be saved because I, I said some magic words about Jesus. You believe that you can just say you trust Jesus, live however you want, and then you get a pass to heaven. But see, a person, and then, he's, and then the argument is, but a person who lives good and doesn't trust in Jesus goes to hell, they say that makes no sense. And so what they're saying is, Jesus is, and this is the argument Paul's making, they're saying Jesus' work on the cross would make people sinners. That it's not obedience to the strict rule of the law that saves people, it's trusting in Christ. And if someone trusts in Christ, they'll live like sinners because there's no law to restrict them. And so Christ is a minister of sin if justification by faith in Christ is true. These false teachers were saying that people need a legalistic set of rules to follow. Otherwise, how will I know they are behaving correctly, right? It is about people behaving the way that I want them to behave. They need to do this and look like this and talk like this and behave like this and then I feel good about them. 
And it's a very self-centered way of thinking because it's not about what I think. It's about how God views them. And Paul had an answer to these false teachers. He said, may it never be. No, of course Christ is not a minister of sin. He says, for if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be the transgressor. May it never be, God forbid, absolutely not, Christ doesn't cause us to sin. The fact that we can just trust in Christ and be forgiven doesn't mean that we can live however we want to or Christ is encouraging us to live a sinful life. And he, he answers so strongly because he is, he is showing them that they have a total misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification by faith. In fact, he turns the argument back around to the Judaizers. He says, if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, and he's talking about the dividing wall. He'll talk about it later in Galatians. He's talking about the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles that God had placed this this wall of division between Jew and Gentiles, that there there was God's people, and he revealed himself to the Jewish people. And he did so miraculously at, at at the Exodus through the plagues, and then through the Passover, and then he saved them as they came out, and, and he split the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry land. And then he, he reveals the law to the Jewish people, not to any other nations of the world. He reveals what his expectations are to the Jewish people. And, and he says, to worship me, this is what's required. And it was all these, these set of rules. We call it the law. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments, but it's something like 613 list of things that you must do. Don't boil a a kid with the mother's milk, make a parapet around your roof, you know, um, all, all these different cleanly laws and civil laws and religious laws, all these things that were needed to do. And the Jewish people realized we could not do them. But God had revealed himself to these people. And there was a wall between them and the Gentiles. And their job was to go out and draw people to the one true God that they worshiped. They were to be a nation of priests, is what God tells them. But there was this wall, and then Christ came. And that wall between Jew and Gentile was destroyed. And Jesus, when he did his reconciling work on the cross, it meant anybody... Jew or Gentile, could have direct access to the Father. It didn't, they did not have to become a Jew and then go through the Jewish temple and do the Jewish offerings and go through the Jewish priest, but they had a great high priest between them and the Father, Jesus Christ. And so they had this direct access. And now these false teachers are trying to rebuild that wall. That's what Paul's saying. I'm going to build this up so there is this distinction between Jew and Gentile again. So these Gentiles have to come in and go through the Jewish way before they go to God. And Paul says, no, 
Christ doesn't cause us to sin, but if you try to build back the wall and make that dividing wall, you are the sinner. Because the only purpose of the law is to divide. Do you get that? It was to say these people could have access to God and these people didn't. But through Christ, that all changed. Everyone has the opportunity to have direct access to the Father. And so if I'm running around and imposing a bunch of rules on people and order them to be getting saved, and we're talking about getting saved here, that's what Paul's issue is about. And I go to somebody and say, man, I'd love you to know Jesus, but you have to dress differently. Or you have, you know, you, 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 I'd, I'd love you to know Jesus, but first you have to live differently. Or you, I want you to know Jesus, but you have to have, I don't know, you know all your tattoos removed or whatever. I don't know. Just name anything if you say I want you to know Jesus, but first, right? Then you are building up a wall of division. And Paul says, Christ isn't the minister of sin then. That person is. The person rebuilding that wall. I am the one who is a sinner if I am imposing these rules on people in order for them to come to know Christ. And again, we're talking about someone entering into God's kingdom. We, we are not talking about the fruit of the Spirit that is displayed once someone comes to know Christ. And Paul's going to talk about licentiousness and how we are not to say, I'm saved, I got my fireproof, you know, I'm, I'm, I got my fire, I'm not going to, fire insurance, I'm not going to burn in hell, and so I'm going to live however I want to. That's licentiousness, and Paul gives us that later. Right now, he's talking about when someone comes to know Christ, there should be no dividing wall between them and Christ. And they're pretty, con they, all these verses are kind of con convoluted in the original language, and they might be a little hard to follow when you're reading through it. But the core of the letter, and really the entire gospel, is here. And it's, and it's essentially saying this. Whatever we do, we must be teaching justification by faith alone. We are declared innocent by trusting wholly on Jesus and Him alone. That is our message. It's the same as I said, when you came and sat down in your pew. If you want the complete forgiveness that Jesus gives, if you want a relationship with your heavenly Father found only through Christ where you can access the Father directly with no human intervention, only the priest high, high priest Jesus who is fully God, fully man, if you want to live with the hope of eternity and with the purpose that's found in, in a relationship with the creator and sustainer of life, you have to let go of your works. You have to let them go. 
You have to remove the, the weight of eternity of your works. That is to say, you, you are carrying around a burden that says, I'm, I want to be in heaven. I want to be with Jesus, but I must be perfect, and we can't be, so I'm going to do as best I can. And that's a heavy, heavy load. And Jesus says, take my load, because my burden is light. And so we let that go because we are tempting to work our way to heaven and whether we believe it or not, whether we realize it or not, we're doing a poor job of trying to get into heaven ourselves for those who are trying to do that. You have to let that go and simply rest in the lap of Jesus. And let him take your sin and trust in the punishment he received. We let go of our works and rest in his work. You know, when someone else is doing the work, you know, you can, you can sit in the lawn chair and watch someone else mow the lawn, right? And you're like, whew, the job is done and I didn't have to do it. That is the idea of, of trusting in Christ. It's the message we must take to our community. It's the message we need to be careful to teach in anything that we do, that we're faithful to make sure that we're not trying to mix in a little bit of ourselves in our salvation. We protect our ministries and we protect ourselves from false teaching when we say, we, when we are told that we are saved by the grace of God alone and not through anything we do. And then we also need to remember, and coming into the last part of this passage, we must simply live for God. And this is kind of addressing what happens after we come to know Christ. There isn't any requirements beforehand, but what happens when I do? Paul finishes here by defending justification by faith, by talking about how he is no longer living for the law, but he lives for God. Make, make sure you understand what he's saying. We don't live for God to earn, you know, we're not living for God to earn our salvation. But when God pours out his grace upon us, we want to live for him. We want to do what pleases him and make him the king of our lives. So the law no longer becomes the restraining influence of sin, but our love for God becomes the restraining influence of sin. We find that Christ is the one who controls our lusts and our desires and our passions and, and, and all the things that want more of the world, Christ begins to shape those when we trust in him. And so Paul first speaks of our death in the law. Look in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. You got to remember, Paul, 
where he came from. He was Saul when we first met him. He was a Pharisee. And that meant he lived for the law. He was raised to know the law, to memorize it exactly. He was, his, his schedule rotated around the legality of the law and all the extra things the Pharisees added to. So you had to pray at this time of day and this time of day and this time of day. And you had to do it in this position and in this way and say these words. His mealtime was dedicated and, and dictated by what the law said he could eat. And there were certain times you had to eat you know, at, at the Sabbath, right at the sundown, then you, they had this meal, and so it was at this particular time and this particular menu, and it, the law dictated all of that. If you were going to be righteous and stand before God righteous, there was all these rules, and that's how he lived. He was a Pharisee. You, can, you, you have to do this. You cannot do that. And all of it was done to attempting to earn God's pleasure. And Paul said it was through the law that he died to the law. See, the law came with a deadly curse. There, there are parts of the law when you read it, a lot of the law when you read it, that if you broke it, the penalty was death. In fact, that's why there was a sacrificial system because when someone sins, something has to die. And so the people had sinned and they would take this animal and they would kill this animal, but it wasn't enough because a animal blood could never pay for my sin. And so there was a constant sacrificing and constant death. The law was about death. In fact, you can read, I believe it's Deuteronomy 28, and half of Israel, when they're going into the promised land, about ready to enter in after 40 years of wandering, half go up to Mount Ebal, and half go up to Mount Gerizim, two huge mountains going into the promised land. And I don't remember which one was which, but I think the people on Mount Gerizim, they were to shout out the blessings of what came if you followed the law. And if you read that, it's a very short section. There's going to be blessings. And then the other half on Mount Ebal, they were to shout out the curses. And that goes on for like a chapter and a half. You will die if you do this. You'll be cursed if you'll do this. The land will not have water. Your, your kids will not have prosperity. You, or you won't have kids. Or I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The law came with the curse of death. It never was meant to bring life. And once the law extracted the death penalty from somebody, the law couldn't do anything else to that person. You, you get that? I mean, if you, if you were guilty of something and it broke the law and they killed you for it, then the law couldn't come and say, well, that dead person sinned again, so we need to kill him again, right? I mean, it kills you and the law's done. Right? 
That's what Paul is saying. Paul was living for the law. And then on his way to Damascus, God knocked him on the ground. Jesus showed up and he put him right on the ground. And Paul was changed. And right there, Paul died to the law and said, I am guilty. I am guilty of the sin of trying to trust in me for my salvation. And from this point on, I will trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And my penalty was placed upon Christ, and he died. And so the law has no more power over me because through Christ, I have died to the law. And it has exacted its punishment from me through Christ. And so he says, by, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Because once he did that, Paul was changed. And while the law is about death, Jesus Christ is about life. And he was raised to new life and he was totally changed. And so his beating of Christians and the imprisoning of Christians and the killing of Christians and his arrogant attitude, his self-righteousness, all of that sin was laid upon, upon Christ. It was sinful, it was deserving of death, and the death penalty the law required was exacted upon that sin. But it was laid upon Christ. And now, as a Christian, the law had no more power over him because you can't kill a dead man, right? It is, it is done. That's why Jesus said, it is, it is finished. There's nothing more that needed to be done. As far as the law was concerned, Paul had died because the sin that he did deserved death and the penalty was paid. And that's the same for you and I. Our sin, the law says, deserves death. And when we have trusted in Christ and the law exacts the punishment out of Christ for our sins, that means the law today has no power over us. And that is good news. That's the best news ever is what, like I said, mercy me says. Because we have trusted in Jesus' death to pay the law's penalty, we have died to the law. That's what he is saying in verse 19. We have died to the law, but he doesn't leave us hanging there. He talks about our life in Christ. Look in verse 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. That's just what I've been talking about. All our sin laid upon him is as if we were crucified with him. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. 
The death penalty has been paid. It was satisfied through Christ. The law that put Christ on the cross, when Christ died, Paul did too. And now when he lives, the only way he can live, because the law has killed him, the only way I can live is because Christ has risen me from the dead, and my life that I have now is God's. It is Christ's to live through me. And I love this. It says, he loved me, and we know that he loves us because he says he gave himself up for us. The false teacher said that by, if you told someone they did not have to live by the law, that would nullify God's grace. That God's grace could only come by doing these works. And if you said that that was not necessary, they would say God's grace would just be canceled out. When he says, I do not nullify the grace of God here, it's a word that means to set aside. And it was a word for, used that were, when there was grain that a farmer had, had uh, harvested, and they brought it to the inspectors, and the inspectors said, this grain isn't good for consumption. It was set aside. It wasn't used for that. It became used for public officials who were described as inefficient and incapable of doing their duty. So, you know, basically any politician you can think of, that, that's the idea. They were nullified. So let's just be, pretend. Let's pretend you could be justified by being circumcised. Or you could be justified by obeying the law of Moses. You could be justified through works. We're pretending this. And let's pretend that in God's economy, he decided that if a person could follow that law perfectly, and, and if they could follow them perfectly, they could be forgiven and spend eternity with God. And Paul said, if this ever could be the case, then why did Jesus Christ have to come and die? Why did he have to leave heaven and endure humiliation and suffering and die? That's what he's saying. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Paul saying, if I could justify myself, then I don't need Christ. If I'm trying to earn my salvation, Paul says here, then actually I'm the one nullifying the grace of God. If I'm trying to earn my salvation, I'm saying I can set aside God's grace because I got it on my own. And that's nullifying God's grace. So when a person lives or teaches that we can justify ourselves by following the law or being religious or participating in religious activity, that person is not only teaching legalism, 
which by Paul's definition is the teaching of death. But they are setting aside God's grace, saying that it's unfit for the purpose that it was sent for. They're saying, I don't need God's grace. Here's here's the long and short of it. And I know it seems like I'm saying the same thing over and over. I'm really not. And I hope you hear that. And the only reason I'm saying it is because Paul is hammering this point home. Works and faith are not two sides of the same coin. They are oil and water. They don't mix. When we're talking about salvation and someone coming in, faith and the law don't go together. In fact, it's probably in the next week or two, Paul will say the law is not of faith. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. Even Jesus Christ did everything for your salvation or you do it all. There's no mix. We're not trying to help Jesus save us. You can't mix works and grace. You cannot mix oil and water. It, it, is, it is all or nothing. So the question I simply want to ask you is, are you doing your best to do whatever you can to get in better relationship with God? Are you trusting in works? Because that will not work. <laughs> it will not be effective. What are you trusting in? We gain right standing with God when we surrender all to him, like sitting in the pew. And I don't mean literally sitting in the pew. That's an analogy. It is transferring all our weight of our works to him and saying, I'll trust in you. Surrendering our lives to him means we come to a point of decision. Has there been a time in your life? Can you point to a decision you have made where, we, where you have surrendered? Where you said, God, I want you to be king of my life. I, I turn from my works and I trust in yours. And if you say, no, I've just been a believer all my life. No, you haven't. You were born sinful. (laughs) There is a sin nature. And when those babies are born, they are precious and full of sin. You know what I'm saying? And they need the grace of Jesus Christ. And you need the grace of Jesus Christ. We need to surrender to sacrifice whatever is most precious to us to God. Abraham stood before Isaac with a knife ready to kill his one son because God told him to, and his knife was raised, ready to sacrifice to God whatever it was he called. Thankfully, that was a picture for us to talk about how God sent his son and sacrificed nothing to save us. But God is calling us to serve him completely 
And while it is free, it is costly because it costs exactly one life. You have to give up your life to follow him. Do I love my job? Do I love my relationship? Do I love this stage in life more than I love Christ? And we come to that point of decision and choose which one. Living, to, living for God means dying to self. And so I'm going to have you bow your heads. Paul was concerned about the gospel, so much so that he stood toe-to-toe with Peter and made sure that he would not bring any false doctrine in. So the question is, do you really believe that you are justified by faith alone? Are you trusting your salvation on the work of Christ? Or do you feel like you have to do more to please God in order to forgive you. And today, I call on you to trust in Christ alone. Are you trying to make God happy by the things that you do? Are you trying to get God to love you more through your religious activity? Are you a believer, but you think your works are the only thing maintaining your relationship with Christ? That I got to keep up good works or God's going to leave me. See, there is freedom today. You can sacrifice that and give it to Christ. Choose to trust him alone and receive abundant life and forgiveness and, and hope. The hope of eternity. Heavenly Father, we come to you and ask that you would move among us now. God, if there's someone here who does not know you, I pray that they would truly come to grips and fully understand that us being good doesn't save us. We are so thankful for Jesus' sacrifice that you loved us enough to give yourself up for us and take on our sin and take our penalty and take our guilt and receive the death penalty in our stead so that we could receive the life found in Christ. God, if there's someone who needs to make that choice today, I pray that they would trust in you for the first time and truly know what it means to be one of your children, to receive the joy and freedom of what it means to be one of your children. And God, for believers today, God, we, there might be someone here who is just still trying to earn your love. They've trusted in Christ. They know they're forgiven. But maybe they're just, they've had relationships that they had to earn love. And they've applied that to you. And God, I pray that you would let them know that there is freedom in knowing that you cannot love them anymore because you love them completely, perfectly, fully. And there's nothing they can do 
to earn more salvation because you have saved them and forgiven them completely. And I pray they find rest in that today. God, speak to our hearts. Speak to our minds. Help us to respond how you call us to. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in Western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 1045 a.m., but if you come a little earlier, we'll always have some coffee and snacks and good fellowship before we begin our worship service. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.